Let me add my welcome this morning as well. My name is Eric Hoffman, the executive pastor here at Fellowship Franklin. If you're new, we'd love to get to meet you after service if, you, if I haven't met you already this morning. Before we jump in our text, I just want to uh, let you know that next week, August 20th, is we're going to have kind of a revision Sunday state of the church, and I don't want you to miss that. We're going to be talking about where we are, where we're going, the initiatives we're going to be focusing on in this next year. And Rob and I are going to be talking about some key things, and then then the following week we'll have JJ talk about some things we're going to do in family discipleship. And so we're going to kind of, over the next couple weeks, talk about where where we're heading um, you, uh, like me, might have uh, been following the last uh, day or two about what's been happening in Virginia, and I just wanted to make just a couple comments on that. Um, I found myself not really knowing what to add or say um, to you as a congregation in this, because it seems so um, anti-gospel of racism. seems like we would all understand that. And, and then yesterday I saw this image with an officer with his, his back to the, the crowd. And there was a guy carrying the sign, and I kind of zoomed in on the picture. And he was quoting Bible verses for why he was marching. And I just want to say very clearly that what racism does is it is actually anti-gospel. In the way that it says that one is superior to another based on skin color, and we can do this in all sorts of different ways. But I just wanted to say very clearly that what we need to be as the church is people that step into these places and speak truth back that everyone is created in the image of God. And that is our base point of how we treat and respect. And the other thing that I would say is, um, reflecting on those things, is it actually convicted me. Because where it starts isn't end up uh, with the Nazism or something like that. It, it ends up where we have to look in our own hearts and where we are critical of others and where we think more highly of ourselves than others. And that's where it starts. And so I was just even uh, mindful of that in my, own, uh, in my own spirit of where I can uh, so easily criticize others or raise myself up to in front of others. And so I just want to open this morning as we open kind of in a somber moment like that, we open in a somber text of the crucifixion. So let's pray and ask God to speak to us through his word and through his spirit and his people. Father, we come before you in need of you, in need of grace. And when we look at things or watch things on the news, we can be so saddened. And it feels like hope is no more. But you, Father, lead the way. Father, we realize that we need you to change our hearts. And we pray for those who are marching, those who are being insulted, those who are being mocked, that we would not be embittered in hate, but God, that you would lead us to preach the gospel to all nations and all tribes, for you died for all. For this in your name, amen. Well, normally I would have an intro and we kind of, kind of to pull you in and tell a quick story or whatever, but I think I've got you with the crucifixion. So I think we're, I think we're ready to dive in this morning. So if you're not, if you're not there already, Mark 15, uh, there's a Bible on uh, the back of the seats. If you don't have one, we'd love for you to follow along with us in that. If you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you just to take that one and it'd be our gift to you. Well, crucifixion was designed by the Romans to be humiliating and a painful way to die. It was a way to um, strip all honor of the person that was being uh, crucified. They wanted to strip power. They wanted to be humiliating. It was a public uh, spectacle. It was gruesome. 
uh, most often ended in shock and asphyxiation. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. There you go. Say that 10 times fast. I nailed it first service. But Mark, however, doesn't focus on the gory details. Now, this is interesting. When we think of the cross, most of us think about what? The physical pain of the cross. Mark does not mention this at all, really. I mean, he, he really focuses on the insults and the mocking and the shame that Jesus bore. And so that's where we're going to land this morning. And as I was prepping uh, this morning, I wanted to be clear on a couple things of how do we center in theologically on what are we to understand about the cross. And so I want to just answer these questions that we might have that are, have important answers. Why was it necessary for Christ to die? I just want to answer that question. Since death is the punishment for sin, Christ died willingly in our place to deliver us from the power and penalty of sin and bring us back to God. By his substitutionary atoning death, he redeems us from hell and gains us for forgiveness of sin, righteousness, and everlasting life. So why did Jesus have to be fully God and fully human? We needed a redeemer that was fully God who could forgive our sins and a fully man who could live the perfect life that we could not follow and obey the law perfectly in our place. And by doing so, that he would be uh, take on our place in the debt that we owe. And we now have a savior who can sympathize with our weakness and suffering and can identify with us. So that being said, let's look at these 11 verses and starting in verse 21. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Serene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, Mark, this is an interesting kind of fact, and Mark doesn't really give us specific names. So if we, as we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen that we, we don't really get a lot of specific names. We get the disciples, we get uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And the, other than that, I mean, really, there isn't a lot of times that Mark is going to draw uh, specific names and draw attention to that. So as we're reading through, that, this is something, if you're studying on your own, just to kind of take note and say, why does Mark mention uh, Simon of Serene, not just Simon, but then his sons. Well, as I've been reading, a lot of people believe that it's because in Romans sixteen thirteen, there's actually mention of these two guys, and we they think that's the same people. So, what a cool redemptive kind of story is the guy who's pulled out as a passerby to carry the crossbeam of Christ is actually comes to faith and now his kids come to faith because Mark is writing to the early church. And if he's writing to the early church, why would he mention, oh yeah, you know Alexander and Rufus and their father, Simon, who carried the cross. Why would he mention them if the early church didn't know them? That's a pretty cool, you know, redemptive story just in a detail like that that Mark gives us. Now, there's one thing that I want to kind of show. I want to show an image. When we think about the cross, typically what we think about in the images that we see, to kind of blow it up in grand scheme, is that we think of crosses that are what? Really tall, like 20, 30 feet, like up in the air, and that they had to hoist him up there. Well, typical Roman crosses were actually only six to eight feet tall, and that the, the beam that was as a cross is actually what Jesus was carrying. And so when you, when you think about what this does, when it sets up Mark's gospel, it actually depicts it in a really interesting light because the mocking, the insults, the things that they were saying, they weren't shouting up to Jesus on the cross. They were actually looking him eye to eye and shouting in his face. 
and the passers-by would actually make it more personable. So when you think about why would Rome do this, well, they wanted to make it very personable in the sense that they wanted to see, hey, these are what we do to people who think they have power against Rome. We put them up on display, and we're going to make it known. We're going to humiliate and shame them. So that's the image we're going to come back to in just a little bit. So let's continue, let's continue on. Now, all of Scripture in the Old Testament is pointing to this pivotal moment of time. So all of Scripture is pointing to this moment, looking ahead to this moment in the Old Testament. Now, there's several prophetic um, verses that we could, we could pull out, we could talk to about the cross, but Mark seems to focus on Psalm 22. So if you're taking notes, write down Psalm 22 and come back and read that in full later. I'm going to highlight some things. Jesus is actually quoting Psalm 22 from the cross when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the psalm also depicts what Jesus would go through on the cross. So let me read a few phrases from Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So in verse 24, what do we see the soldiers doing before Jesus on the cross? They're dividing his clothes. So even the smallest detail is predicted in this, in the crucifixion. It was not an accident of human history. It was planned in accordance with the scripture in the plan of the Father. Verse 29, we even see this from Psalm 22. They were wagging their heads in insult and mocking them. What I want to do is I want to, I want to focus in on the mockery and the insults that Jesus is bearing in this moment. So we're going to look at several verses right in a row of what is happening. So let's look at verse 24. And they crucified him, dividing up his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Let's go to verse 26. So we'll just stop in verse 24. So if they're dividing up his garments, Jesus is then going to the cross naked. And Rome would do this. They would put, their, they would put the criminals on the cross, again, to shame and humiliate them. Let's go to verse, verse 26. The inscriptions, the charge, the sign above him read the king of the Jews. And so then Pilate and other gospels, you see that Pilate wrote this, wrote this in three different languages. He put this up there and they're mocking him with this. Now, I think Pilate doesn't change this. The, the religious leaders wanted them to change this to, hey, make this a he claimed to be. Pilate says, I've written what I've written. But why does Pilate leave this? I believe Pilate leaves this because he's saying, hey, look, this guy, you're claiming he's like the king. Look what Rome can do to even who has power and who you think is king. Again, exercising power over them. And then verse 29, those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, who are you? We're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. So passing by, they they would put the crosses in places of of high traffic area to visibility in that. And then verse 31, the chief priests and scribes uh, weigh in on their mocking and they say he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Now, let's pause there. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. So these are the religious leaders who have been following Jesus in his acts. So as we've walked through the Gospel of Mark, what have they seen Jesus do? Heal the blind, cure incurable diseases, 
They've seen him restore, um, restore people to walk. They've seen him raise uh, Lazarus from the dead. They've seen him feed multitudes. They've seen him exercise power that actually in the Old Testament would point all to that this is the Messiah. This is the sign. This is the one you've been looking for. And then what are they doing here? What are they asking for? They're asking for one more sign of power. And they say, well, if you, if you show us a sign, then we'll believe. Who does this remind you of, of who tempted Jesus to exercise his power for his own glory to show who he was? Go all the way back, Satan, in the desert, and he says to Jesus, do this, do this, and then we'll. They're in the same line of the temptations of what Satan was doing to Jesus. And in this way, they're asking for Jesus to put his power on, to, to say, hey, here's Here's, show us who you are, show us who you are, then we'll believe. But we know that they won't believe because in a couple days, what's going to happen? Jesus is going to come back to life and they're going to try to cover it up, which again, just exposes that we need God uh, to open our hearts to the awareness of our need for him. But they're asking Jesus to do something that he's unwilling to do. But why is Jesus unwilling to do it? Because he's not going to use his power to glorify himself, but to glorify the Father and to serve us. We see this in Mark 10, 45. He came not to serve, but to, not to, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So let's look, at, look in our, our Bibles. Let's see, Mark is highlighting the mockery of Jesus. Let's go back to chapter 14. After the Lord's Supper, Verse 43, they're in the garden. Jesus is betrayed by one of his followers, Judas. They arrest him. What do they do when they arrest him? They bring him before the religious leaders. They blindfold him. They punch him. They mock him. They spit in his face. They insult him. Then what happens? Peter, Peter denies him, one of the closest of disciples to Jesus. He claims he doesn't even know who he is. Again, uh, another insult to, to Jesus. Jesus before Pilate, they asked for Barabbas. But the, the other thing, Jesus is mocked. The soldiers, they take the soldiers, take, uh, take Jesus, they beat him, they flog him, they dress him up, they mock him, they claim, oh, hail king of the Jews. They act like they're kneeling down and, and bowing down before him. And then we get into the crucifixion and we see that the passers-by are mocking him and insulting him. The religious leaders are doing that. And even the, the, the criminals that are next to him are doing that. So why does Mark focus on all of these things? Why does Mark not focus on the physical pain, but rather the insults and the mockery and the shame that Jesus is bearing? Well, I believe it's two different things. One is cultural and one is theological. The cultural reason I believe that Mark is doing this is this, the readers that would read this in the in first text, the early church, were from an honor-shame culture. So an honor-shame culture would be family and reputation is the most important thing. Uh, you do things to honor the, your name and your family, and to do something that would dishonor your family, you would be cut off. This is where you see in Middle Eastern countries or even Eastern countries in China and India and places like that, if you were to go against the family and you came to faith, what would end up happening? Like you would either be in danger of being killed or being cut off from the family. But why? Because it would bring dishonor to the family name. This is why they have revenge killings, kind of taking back honor for the family. So when the first uh, hearers would actually hear this, be, of what Mark is describing here, 
they would have thought that what Jesus went through of the insults and the shame that he bore and his reputation, he's being dishonored and he's being mocked was far worse than the physical pain. But when we read it, what do we think of? The physical pain that Jesus went through. But the readers there would think of it much differently than what we do. When we are an individualistic culture, so we think about uh, individual responsibility, individual guilt. So we, we, like we say, like, I'm going to make my own path. I'm going to make my own way. It's not uncommon for us to move away from our family, to be more independent. Like kids move away from college, right? They want to get away from their parents. But in honor-shame culture, they're trying to take care of their parents. They're living with their parents. They're the elderly. They're taking care. It's, it's, a, it's a communal culture. Ours is an individualistic culture. So of course, we're going to think of this and think of, well, I wouldn't want to go through this. Like that's how we interpret it. So that's the cultural reason I think Mark does this. Now here's the theological. I think Mark is describing what Jesus is doing so that we would understand what he is actually bearing on the cross is not just about our guilt of sin, and it's not just our justification that he's accomplishing, but that he is actually bearing our shame. So it's thinking about Jesus, the author, the creator of all that we see, is actually having his creation mock him to his face. Can you imagine the the shame that he is embracing for us? So when we think of the cross, we picture Jesus um, up on the cross covered, but let's, let's go back to the image again. This is, this is typically how we see um, Jesus in the crucifixion. He's, he's covered. He has a loincloth around him. And, you know, I'm not saying we should change that in all of our, our paintings, but that's not true of what happened, right? Jesus is on the cross, naked, fully exposed. So let's just walk through and develop this idea. Think about in light of the whole scripture. Where is the first time that we hear about someone being naked? In the garden. Okay, so let's go back to the garden. Let's go, if, keep your place there. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to develop a little bit of this idea of what is happening, what is being foreshadowed, even in Genesis. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both make, naked and were not ashamed. So here they are. They're naked. They're feeling no shame about that. All you have to do is just turn one page over and we're going to see what happens, okay? Pick it up, chapter 3, verse 7. They take of the fruit, which God commanded them not to take, and then the eyes of both of them were opened. And then they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? So what's the first thing that happens after they sin? They realize they're naked. They feel shame. What do they try to do? Cover themselves up and hide. Then see how God responds. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife 
and he clothed them. Now here's what I think is a foreshadowing of what I think Mark is doing in this. So the first thing they did after they sinned was they went into hiding. And then in verse 21, when God comes to them, he sees them in their shame, hiding, trying to cover themselves in fig leaves. And what does he do? He actually gives them a provision to cover their shame. So Jesus, I mean, God in the, in the garden, when he's with them, what he is doing, he's actually foreshadowing what he's going to do on the cross. He actually uh, kills an animal to provide provision to cover their sin and shame. This is the first time that we see the shedding of blood, not just to cover the guilt, but the shame of the sinner. This moment foreshadows the cross and what is happening on the cross in some unparalleled ways. So think about Jesus is exposed and naked on the cross, but whose shame is he bearing? Ours. Insults are being hurled at him. He is being humiliated, though he is innocent. So simply put, Jesus died the death we deserved and lived the life we couldn't so that we may have life with God and in God. This, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, was the, the end of all sacrifices. He is our provision. Now think about the cross forward. So in the New Testament, in the church, in the epistles, how are those who are talked about as those who put their faith and trust in Christ and are believers, how are they talked about? What's some names given to those who are believers and followers of Christ? This is where I want you to respond. Yeah. Saints. Children of God. Sons and daughters. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. What kind of language is that? Is that shame language or honor language? You see, what Jesus accomplished on the cross is actually bringing our honor back. What, we're, what we see is that we are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Christ is the provision that God has given literally to clothe us with his son's righteousness. When the father sees those who have put their faith and trust in what Christ has done, how does he look upon them? He sees the son's righteousness. They are in Christ. They are clothed with Christ's righteousness. So Jesus is not only bearing the guilt of our sin, but he's also bearing the shame of our sin. Now, here's where I want us to apply. What, is, what does this mean for us? Because it'd be one thing for us to talk about atonement. It'd be one thing to talk about substitutionary atonement and pass a test and fill in all the right answers. If I took a test on how are we saved or any of those things. And it's a, a complete another to actually apply what we're talking about in our everyday life, into the messiness of life. Grace is not applied where we don't ask for it or we don't see a need. So guilt is I did something wrong. And that's typically how we look at the cross in just that lens, that we did something wrong and Christ was paying that penalty of our sin, which is true. But another aspect that I believe Mark is bringing up here is that Jesus is also covering our shame, which shame is I am bad, unworthy of being loved and accepted. So shame is not just the result of sin, but it has to be dealt with because if we don't deal with our shame of the sin, we can actually admit, yeah, I'm forgiven. Jesus paid the price, but we will live in the shame of sin until we actually allow the grace of Christ to cover that too. 
So if we don't deal with the shame of our sin, we will live in hiding and isolation, and it will actually just lead to years and years of us not telling the truth of, what we're, of what's actually happening. We will actually just live in a place where we'll actually, shame will actually breed more sin, where we'll actually go to more isolation, we'll actually go to more anger, we'll actually use people to try to fill ourselves because we feel incomplete, we'll buy more clothes because we want others to view us a certain way, we'll try to get a job because if I get this, then I'll be viewed a certain way. We're trying to fill our lives with something that was never designed to fill our lives, and we will only feel more and more shame until we get down to the core of what we're dealing with here. So Jesus in his grace, must speak into the dark places of our lives. So what do I mean by dark places? Well, it's any place that you're trying to hide from others. It's any place where you don't want others to see or know or areas you wish weren't true of you. It's areas where you're putting on fig leaves to try to cover something up that will never cover something up. So being exposed in our sin and shame is actually an act of God's grace this morning because we are actually being exposed and it shows our need and where we're looking for a functional savior apart from Christ. So here's what I want to do. I want us to actually identify where do we feel shame. And I want you to pinpoint it in, in, on your own. I want you to actually pinpoint it so we can actually apply this to where we're going. So I'm going to give you a few examples of, of kind of bringing this to light. Where do you still hold on to the shame of a past sin? Having asked for forgiveness, you believe it's forgiven, but you still hold on to the shame of the sin. Do you think if, I, if people knew who I actually was, I wouldn't be accepted? Maybe it was something that was done to you at an early age. Maybe you're carrying the shame of a current sin that has gotten out of control and has taken master of you and you don't know how you're going to get out of it. Maybe it's around the ideal. You have certain ideals that you're trying to live up to, a certain standard, and you, you realize you're not the parent you think you should be. There's shame around you not being the spouse that you should be. You're not the daughter or son that you should be. Now, it can be our weight. It can be where we live. It can be the job we have. It doesn't feel enough. It doesn't feel like we'll be accepted. What do you say when you look into the mirror? Do you look at yourself as a way where you're disgusted? How could anyone ever love this or accept this? You see, things in our story where shame has power take up an incredible amount of real estate in our thoughts and in our emotional life. We keep dwelling on them. We keep hearing the same things over and over again. So I want you to pinpoint it. I want you to carry that through of where you're feeling shame, where you feel that in your everyday life. And we're going to apply that as we walk through. See, the forgiveness of sin doesn't happen in this sterile theological laboratory where we just have the right answers. It happens in the messiness of real life and the cross beckons us to come as we are. Earlier in the Gospels, Jesus asked this question to someone who was ill and he, I believe, is asking us the same question. Do you want to get well? 
Shame keeps us saying, God, you can't use me. There's no way you could use me. I mean, I, I'm washed up. I, if, if people around me knew my story, oh God, like they wouldn't, they wouldn't let me in this church. They wouldn't let, they, if they knew. But the cross says, come as you are. And the cross says, I have been exposed, been rejected, been mocked, been insulted on your behalf so that you can come and be in relationship with the Father. Shame doesn't get the final say in our lives. But the thing that we typically do is we let shame fester. We let shame grow. And the thing that we need to do is actually bring it into the light where the grace of Christ actually melts it away. But confession seems like the scariest thing because I'm actually going to be confessing something I've been hiding my entire life for others not to know and realize and see. So where do you feel shame? Do you feel, Eric, you know, if you, if you only knew, like I still struggle with this or I was an alcoholic or I've been divorced or if you knew what this person did to me, I feel like I deserved it. I didn't say no. I feel like I, I deserved that abuse that was done to me. What is shame in your story? What keeps you in hiding is actually keeping you a prisoner in your story. But the thing that God wants to do is he wants you to bring that out into the light of Christ where you can actually experience freedom, where you're not a prisoner of your shame anymore. And when you're not a prisoner of your shame, you can actually use what was once a dark place that you tried to cover with fig leaves that you can now say, yeah, I was this. But by the grace of God and his work in my life and the spirit that's empowered me to live a new way, I actually want to go back in my story to the places I've tried to hide places I try not to admit. And I actually want to go back to people that struggled with an eating disorder, people that struggled with abuse, people that struggled with alcohol and people that struggled with drugs. And I want to go back in the muck because I want to pull them back up and say, there is a way because the God of all comfort will comfort us in our times of trouble so that we can comfort others in their time of need. But if you stay in shame, you cannot go back and be a redemptive story because you stay in hiding. And I would love to be a church where we can come into the messiness of life and we say, come as you are, because Jesus is asking you this question, do you want to get well? And I believe he would say, what what do you need to expose in your life? Because vulnerability is the antidote of shame. Shame will continue to have its power while you keep it hidden. But when you step into a community of faith of radical grace empowered by the gospel, you will actually see that shame melts away and that freedom begins and you see a new life ahead. So here's what I want you to do. What was Jesus doing on the cross with our shame? Turn to Hebrews 12. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that has been set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who the joy set before him endured the cross, doing what? Despising 
the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the Father at the throne of God for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Why was Jesus mocked, beaten, exposed, naked, insulted, betrayed? Why was he done? He did that for you so that you with the Father would not have to be rejected, so that your shame would not have the final say. He despised the shame on the cross, shame you are not worthy of dwelling on. There is something greater. I've got a race marked out for me. God has a plan and a path for me. I want to be used by God, but that only happens if we despise the shame that Jesus despised on the cross. And he did it so that you would have a relationship with the Father, that you could come confidently to the throne of grace as a son of daughter, as a saint who sees themselves covered by the righteousness of Jesus, that you actually can have a redemptive story, not a story where you buy the lie that you're used goods or that you did this or this happened to you because someone else, because you didn't say it loud enough to stop. Listen, your divorce is not your final say. Alcoholism is not your final say. Eating disorder is not your final say. Shame is not your final say. It doesn't get the say because Jesus despised it on the cross. It wasn't just our guilt. It wasn't just our guilt. It was our shame. And how many of us miss out on serving others because we're afraid they're going to find out that we're a phony or we're a fraud or we have a past? Newsflash, all of us have a past. All of us don't live up to the perfection of Christ. That's why we're in need. That's what it means to be the people of God who walk alongside of each other in the messiness of life and the grace of God actually speaks into our story and it actually changes our story. But it only comes out when confession that we have need and vulnerability is the antidote of our shame. That there would be freedom for some of you who think the sin was too much, the cross says it wasn't. Jesus beckons you this morning and invites you this morning to see that he calls you and he sees you differently than you see yourself. And that you're gonna need community to actually speak to you the truth of how God sees you because the lies are gonna come. The shame is gonna be there. Monday morning when you Yell at your kid before you even get out the door for school. The ideal parent is going to go out the window and you're going to need grace. Shame doesn't get the final say. So what do we do? I want to have the ushers come forward and we're going to take the Lord's table and you guys can start passing. Here's what I want to do. If we can't bear the shame on our own, which... I think some of you think, I can bear the shame. I can change on my own. I can, I can sow enough fig leaves so people won't hide, you know, they, they won't see my shame. I can, I can present myself a certain way. No one's going to see me actually how I am. But the reality is, you cannot carry the burden of shame. You can't carry it. You'll be stuck in it. 
So what do we do? If striving and sowing enough fig leaves aren't going to change our shame, then what do we do? If we can't strive, if we can't earn it, what do we do? We receive. We receive that Christ's perfect work in his life, in my place, was his provision to cover not only the guilt of my sin, but also the shame of my sin. that it actually covers us, that Christ is the provision that we can actually walk with God in all things by his spirit in us. So carrying into the light usually means confession of coming out of hiding. I want to be clear for those of you who haven't put your faith and trust in Christ, what this is, that we are taking the Lord's table so that we are actually shifting our trust to what Christ has done and not ourselves. And so I'd invite you, through Christ's atoning work on the cross, would you put your faith in him that he has covered your penalty of your sin and exchange it for the righteousness of him, that God made him who knew no sin to take on our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We are saved only through the perfect work of Christ and we are saved by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. So as you hold the bread and the cup, would you pinpoint where you feel shame? And would you take it to the cross where it was despised? And there's kneelers up here. If you, as we sing this next song, as we prepare for taking the Lord's table, would you maybe just come up and just say, you know, maybe you just ask your spouse to come up with you or ask someone near you or you come up by yourself. But just to come before him and say, I want to get well that this morning there would be a shift in us as we sing, will we shift our attention to Jesus and his power?